and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity podcast. I'm Christine Burns. My guest in this episode is internationally famous as a human rights campaigner who's not afraid to tread on anyone's toes. Peter Tatchell was once described as a homosexual terrorist. To some, he's been public enemy number one. His causes have spanned four decades and world affairs. He's campaigned on capital punishment, the Vietnam War, apartheid, environmental issues and LGBT rights, to name just a few. He famously outed ten Church of England bishops as gay and accused them of hypocrisy. He performed a citizen's arrest on Robert Mugabe on charges of torture. He was nearly run over by Tony Blair's motorcade once when campaigning against the Iraq War. He's often been arrested and beaten up by authorities. His direct activism methods are applauded by some, but abhorred by others, and not just those on the receiving end. Peter, you're 57 now. For many people, that's a time to start thinking of throttling back a bit. Is there a point where you might think, well, perhaps you're getting a little bit old for getting arrested and beaten up? Well, I've been campaigning for human rights for 42 years. I'm only 57. Uh, I reckon there's probably another four decades of campaigning in me. <laughs> After all, my uh, grandfather lived to his late 90s and was very active. So did my great uncle. So if I've got the right genes, um, all being well, I'll be carrying on well into my 90s. So going back to where it all began, you, you, grew, you were born and grew up in Melbourne, Australia in the 50s. You started campaigning even before you left school. So is it, is it a genetic thing, being a campaigner? Definitely not genetic. Um, no one in my family has ever campaigned on anything. So what drives you to campaign? Somehow or some way, I got what probably seems to me to be a rather overdeveloped conscience. Um, I remember at about the age of 11 being shocked and horrified to see the TV news one night where it uh, reported the bombing of the the black church. I think it was in Birmingham, Alabama, when three young girls were killed by white racists. And I was really, really shocked and traumatized by that. I felt, you know, how could anybody do this to another human being? You know, these kids were my age, you know. It could have, you know, if, if I'd been had a different, different colour skin, it could have happened to me. So um, that, that sort of, you know, really, you know, got my conscience going. And from that age onwards, I became very interested and motivated about current affairs. And my first ever campaign was not until I was 15 in 1967 uh, in Melbourne, Australia, uh, when a prisoner was due to be hanged for a crime he almost certainly didn't commit. Um, the evidence, even I worked out as a 15-year-old, the evidence was not uh, strong and certainly not beyond reasonable doubt. Um, so I got involved in the campaign to try and save his life. Um, it didn't work. He was hanged. Um, and that sort of has provoked a lifelong scepticism of authority. You know, it destroyed my confidence in the police, the judicial system, and the government. Now, your approach is distinctive and direct. So why is it that you, you work that way? Well, of course, it would always be preferable to be able to sit down with the Prime Minister or the Metropolitan Police Commissioner or the Army Chief of Staff and other other bigwigs in the establishment and negotiate a solution to problems of human rights violations and injustice. 
But that isn't always possible. And, you know, and some, the prime sometimes, minister- sometimes polite lobbying doesn't work. And therefore, like Mahatma Gandhi or Sylvia Pankhurst or Martin Luther King, sometimes you have to take more direct action you know, to challenge those in power who are abusing their influence to cause harm and injustice to other people. And you've certainly done that. You've been sometimes beaten up, sometimes arrested. Don't you ever get frightened? Often. You know, it's, you know, even now with all my years of experience, uh, doing a protest is always a nerve-wracking experience, partly because I'm worried about failing, Mm -hmm. being rumbled by the police and being arrested before I even get to do the protest, and partly because of the fear of arrest, um, perhaps being beaten up, Perhaps you know some of the things I've done could have potentially lended uh, lended to imprisonment. So it's it's not a um, it's, it's even at this even at my experienced years it, it's not something that I take lightly. But I just think that when you see injustice, when your attempts to resolve that injustice by polite means mm-hmm. don't get anywhere, you can't just walk away. You, you really do have to challenge those in power and authority. Now, there are so many injustices in this world. How do you pick out and prioritise the ones you go for? All my campaigns are in response to appeals for help and solidarity from uh, victimised people, whether it be uh, gays and lesbians in Jamaica mm-hmm. or uh, trade unionists in Iran. I'm responding to their Requests for help and assistance to publicise and highlight the abuses they're suffering. Um, and within that, I, I tend to focus on those issues that perhaps don't have much uh, public awareness or recognition. So although I'm very supportive of the campaigns against China's human rights abuses in Tibet or the abuses of the junta in Burma, you know, there are lots of organisations campaigning on those issues. Um, so I've concentrated on other issues like um, you know the struggle of the Baluchistan people, the occupied region of Pakistan, for their right to self-determination, or the plight of the Arabs in Iran who are suffering racist and ethnic persecution. You know, not many people work on those issues, um, so that's why I've chosen to put my resources into uh, working with the people there to help bring their struggle to a wider global audience. Now, it's sometimes the case that today's maverick is, is, is tomorrow's visionary. I mean, have you seen that happen to yourself in, in the time you've worked? Well, when I first began campaigning for lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender human rights way back in the late 1960s, these causes were very marginal, mm-hmm. even among liberal and left opinion. Um, you know, the prevailing consensus in the late 60s, even early 70s, was that gay people were mad, sad, and very, very bad. Um, you know, the view was that um, you know, we were at best to be tolerated and at worst to be criminalized and, and hounded and harassed. Um, that, thankfully, has very significantly changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, as LGBT people, do not live in a perfectly free and equal society yet. You know, there's still a ban on same-sex marriage, Gay and bisexual men are still banned from donating blood. Um, uh, Lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender refugees who are fleeing persecution in homophobic countries like Iraq, Nigeria and Uganda still often get deported back um, to their homelands where they're at risk of arrest and imprisonment. Um, We still find that the police and the Crown Prosecution Service 
often do not prosecute um, hate singers and preachers who advocate the killing and murder of gays. Uh, you know, that shows that the battle for equality is not yet mm. won. And, and those sorts of things, because we're, we're both LGBT people, they, they make us very aware of the fact that there is injustice. Do you, do you think it's, it's necessary to have that experience, that personal experience of injustice, to really fire you up? I initially came to the struggle for human rights from a position of empathy mm. with others suffering extreme persecution and oppression. But then, of course, my own experience coming from a pretty deprived working-class background and my own homosexuality has compounded and strengthened that desire to challenge uh, the diminution of freedom and human rights. So it's a combination of you know, empathy and you know, the intellectual reasoning that these injustices are wrong and my own particular experience. Um, you know, I think it's, 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 it's very important that we don't just view the world from what happens to us, but we have this capacity to look beyond ourselves and recognize that essentially everybody on this planet is part of the same human family. And if we had that attitude, if we treated people who are suffering injustice in far-off lands in the same way that we would treat people suffering injustice in our own family or neighborhood, then lots of the tyrannies and mayhem and murder that exist in the world today would not exist because people would rise up against it. Now, you're not all placards and protests. You, you also stood as a Labour candidate for Bermondsey in 1983. Now you're the candidate for the Green Party in Oxford East. Why do you want to get into politics in that sense? To me, I've never, ever had a burning desire to be a member of Parliament. It's not some desperate career path that I've chosen and set my sight on, unlike some people. You know, for some people, being a member of Parliament is like is the crowning glory. You know, um, to me, um, all it would do would be give me a platform and a new arena mm. to project and promote my human rights work and to help empower others who are campaigning for human rights. Because I, I, I never work alone; I'm always working in concert with others on whatever the campaign may be. I mean, last year I did a big campaign to try and support people in Somaliland. You know, the um, breakaway new democratic Islamic Republic in the Horn of Africa, which has, despite some flaws and failings, largely made the transition from war and chaos to uh, a multi-party democracy um, where the human rights of, of, of its citizens are respected, where there are basic freedoms. Um, it's a fantastic African and Muslim success story, but very, very few people have heard about it. And I just think that those people really... You know, when they came to me and said, can you help us you know, you know, write some more and you know, do some programs about our, our struggle, I thought, yeah, these people need a voice and countries around the world need to be supporting them because they show the progressive face of Islam. Now, that, that brings me to the next point, really, because you know, being a campaigner, I, I know from experience and being on the other side of the table, being a campaigner brings with it a lot of freedoms because you can pick exactly what you say and what you do. You know, could a personality like yours adjust to, to the different environment of, of working in Parliament and perhaps being under a whip? Well, the Green Party doesn't operate like the traditional parties. You know, we have much greater freedom and flexibility and, um, you know, we have a broad you know, policy framework and you're expected to conform mm. to that. But we don't have the sort of strict discipline that the major parties have. Um, you know, we accept diversity 
within the green movement and you know it's good to have i think different voices within a single party because when you become monofocused and just have a have a monologue you don't progress you get you're stuck in your ways and you know you're not in a position to really refine and adjust your political standpoint on the basis of new evidence and what about the state of parliament at the moment then um, <laughs> You know, what do you think needs to be done to redeem it? You know, what about greed, for instance? Well, Parliament and the whole political process is rotten to the core. You know, we need a new Chartist movement mm. to ensure a democratic, representative and accountable Parliament. Um, as everyone knows, in the last election in 2005, Labour won only 36% of the vote, but ended up with 55% of the seats. In fact, only 21% of eligible voters voted Labour, yet it uh, bagged a huge parliamentary majority. That is not democracy. That is a corruption of democracy. And, you know, the sad fact is that we have never had a government in this country since long before the war which has ever won a majority of the popular vote. Every single government since 1945 including the Thatcher and Blair governments, have been minority governments with only a minority of support among the general population of electors. Um, that is not good for democracy. It's not good for politics. If we had had some kind of proportional representation system for Parliament, it would ensure that every MP was elected based on majority of votes in their constituency. It would ensure that every government had a majority support in the country, and I doubt that we would have had uh, regressive policies like the Iraq War mm. uh, or the attacks on civil liberties that have taken place under the Labour government. Let's talk a bit more about human rights. Um, why do you think it's so difficult for humans to treat each other well? The single biggest threat to human rights in the world today is organised religion. Doesn't mean to, that does not mean to say that all people of faith are you know, anti-humanitarian, but the major organised religions have been behind many of the worst human rights abuses now and in the past. You just look at the way in which the church, the Christian churches, um, condone colonialism and slavery. Um, look at the way today many faiths, in fact, all, nearly all faiths, condone the subjugation of women. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some support grotesque abuses like compulsory veiling and female genital mutilation. Others simply say that women shouldn't be office holders in the, in the faith or that they should not be allowed to hold high political office. But the common thread is that women should remain as second-class citizens. Um, you know, the biggest crime against humanity today is the crime against the female sex. Mm -hmm. And yet it's often the one that is least recognised and campaigned upon by those who profess a commitment to human rights. Because it's under our nose. It's under, under, under people's nose. Um, it's also just not seen as being in the framework of traditional human rights. Mm -hmm. Traditional human rights is about ethnic and political uh, and religious persecution. It's uh, about other people, not the, not the woman sitting next to you. Yeah, or, or, or the woman on the other side of the world who, um, you know, 
perhaps has been forced into marriage against her will, mm. uh, who perhaps is being raped within marriage, um, who perhaps is, is not allowed to inherit uh, property on the death of her husband. But we want to do an oil deal with her country. Absolutely. You know, the shocking thing is, you know, Britain and the United States will quite rightly condemn the human rights abuses in Iran, but they're notably silent about the human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia. And why is that? Well, we buy their oil and they buy our weapons. Okay. You know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a complete corruption of um, standards of international human rights and of our professed commitment to their universality. So in our lifetimes, is this really about mitigation? Because is, is it impossible to change the world? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty big deal to try and uh, topple and do away with re- world religions. I don't think we necessarily have to do away with world religions, but what we need is people in those religions to reconcile their faith with respect for democracy and human rights in the way that the esteemed um, Iranian Shia cleric uh, Sheikh Akakwani has done or in the way that um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa has done. You know, these are not religious oppressors. These are, in fact, people whose faith has been a, um, an instrument or motivation to support progressive social change and the defense of human rights. So coming closer to home, what about the, the current equality bill? I mean, is the government getting it right or, or do you think it's actually perpetrating perhaps inequality? The new equality bill is framed and ostensibly created in order to address the uneven patchwork of equality laws that we've had up till now, to harmonise them all together, to create a level playing field. The reality is that It does do this to some extent, although there are certain notable exceptions. For example, in the anti-harassment clauses, it's notable that lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender people are excluded from protection against harassment. Now, that's not equality. That's Mm -hmm. discrimination. And for an equality act to enshrine discrimination is is mind-blowing, unbelievable and goes against its whole ethos. Now, if we can talk a little bit more about LGBT then, you came and settled in Britain in 1971 and I I remember that was only four years after homosexuality was decriminalised. You got involved with Gay Liberation Front back then. Obviously, a lot's changed in 40 years. What's the most significant change for you? I think it's impossible to to single out one particular change. But what I would say is that, that the two significant changes overall are the combination of greater public acceptance although that's not yet won I mean still there's about a quarter to a third of the British public who say that homosexuality is always or mostly wrong Mm -hmm. and um, the way in which progressively most homophobic laws have been repealed Mm -hmm. Um, you know there are some left like the ban on same-sex marriage um, but by and large, the main homophobic laws have gone. And that is an astonishing achievement. It's all changed very quickly. In less than a decade, mm. we've seen the abolition of homophobic laws, some of which have been around for decades, if not centuries. I'd say that the lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender human rights movement 
has been one of the most successful of all time. You know, it's achieved reforms, major, major, major reforms in an astonishingly short space of time. Now, one of the techniques of that, of course, was, was a little unusual. You, you founded Outrage in, in 1994, and, and not everyone approves of the tactics you've, you've used, such as the threat of outing people. Was it in its time really necessary? Outing was totally necessary and justified uh, because we were exposing people in politics and the church who were abusing their power to harm other gay people while themselves secretly having gay affairs. So it was an attack on hypocrisy and homophobia in high places. If we had not done anything, if we just allowed them to carry on, we would, been, would, we would have been colluding with their oppression. Do you think you've mellowed over the years? No. I, I think, if anything, I haven't done nearly enough. I, I feel quite ashamed that I haven't <laughs> stirred more pots and rocked more boats. You know, I, I wish I'd used outing more often to um, silence hypocrites and homophobes. Because in the case of the church, it was very effective. Mm -hmm. Those ten bishops we named after that moment never again spoke out against gay rights. Would you think it's dangerous for any of us to mellow? I suppose some people would say that mellowing is, is part of the ageing process. Um, that, you know, maintaining a, a, a perpetual struggle and, you know, that enthusiasm is very difficult. But, you know, there are people like Tony Benn who've gone from being mm. sort of a centre-left person to being, you know, a relatively left-wing person over his life. Um, you know, I've got other friends who, who likewise have, have, uh, have maintained their original, you know, I suppose revolutionary, you know, you know politics and ideals about change, transforming society. But I would say that many, many people in the LGBT community, and indeed all communities, um, have tended to end up settling for equality within the status quo rather than transforming the status quo. And my, my agenda has always been about changing society, not conforming to it. You know, on LGBT rights, you know, yes, we suffer homophobic discrimination, but we should never think for one moment that straight people have a life in paradise. Um, you know, there are lots of examples of straight people getting a raw deal. I mean, sex education in schools is very, very, still very, very poor. That's bad for straight kids as much as it is for gay ones. Talking about kids, I mean, the new generation of LGBT people, you know, are they getting it right? I don't see much evidence of radicalism within the younger LGBT generation. There are some people, there are small groups like Queer Youth Network and so on, who are you know, holding aloft the, the radical flame. But for the most part, people, I think, have settled for equality within the existing society. And um, once discrimination is overcome, they think, OK, that's fine. Yeah. So it's, maybe it's, it's like young girls perhaps not seeing too much in feminism now. Yeah, I think there are very, very similar parallels. And that, too, is... Uh, tragic because, as we know, um, yes, women have made great strides and advances, but still, on average, women's pay is less than men. Still, there is a glass ceiling in many, not all, but many occupations. And, you know, still we see a great deal of sexism and misogyny in our society manifest in everyday life in the way women are treated and depicted. Right, last question. 
if you had the power to change anything just in an instant, what would it be? Um, that's really an impossible question. <laughs> but um, I suppose the biggest global issue is the fact that a billion people on this planet are hungry and don't have safe, clean drinking water. You know, to remedy that injustice would be the single most transformative thing that one could do. I've been speaking to Peter Tatchell. If you want to learn more about him and his work, then his website is www.petertatchell.net. And that, as usual, brings us to the end of another episode of Just Plain Sense. If you'd like to hear more, then the place to go is podcast.plain-sense.co.uk. Join us again soon for another episode on a topic of equality and diversity. For now, though, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production. Mm-hmm.